Hello, today I have Annie with me. Hi, Annie, would you like to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself? Certainly. Hi, Donna. I'm Annie Doyle and I asked Donna if I could be interviewed because I'm a debut novelist, currently working on my second book, and I just wanted to be able to talk a little bit about my writing journey and my debut novel. Uh, did you always know that you wanted to write? Yes, I wrote, I think I was very lucky, Donna, because my mum, she's 91 now, and she still loves stories. She tells stories, she talks all the time about her childhood, which is fantastic for me, because I'm writing family sagas, historical family sagas, so I'm like a little sponge. I always have been soaking things up, writing things down, but she brought us up on stories and my dad was an artist, so he painted. So there was always creativity within the family and that was encouraged. I used to write little bits of things, not do anything with them, but there was a point, I think I was about eight or nine, when a couple of poems that I had written were published in our local paper up here, the Newcastle Evening Chronicle, it was because they were necessarily any good I think it was because my dad worked there and he knew the editor. But I got a lovely note from the editor, which I still have. And this would have been probably around about 1970. Um, and the little note basically said he'd like the poems and he encouraged me to keep writing and hope that one day, you know, I would maybe find a successful career out of it. Um, but then life gets in the way, doesn't it? And so for many years, I didn't write, apart from little observations always. I think people watching and people listening is the most fascinating thing. And you, you can see something. And if you have the imagination, you can turn it into a scene or a chapter in a story. Um, so I still have that note from the editor and that notion of seeing my words in print never went away. But as I say, that would have been a long time ago. And it was only last year that I reached the stage where I became, well, it was 2021, where I became a published author. And again, just seeing my words in print, actually in a published novel. Yeah, I always knew I wanted to try to do it. And it's it's fantastic having done it. Now I want to carry on. And what made you sit down on that day and say, to, that's it, today's the day that I'm going to finally start? It's funny, isn't it, in life, how you're throwing these, these curveballs sometimes and you don't know why, you don't know what they mean, but then sometimes things develop from a situation I'd worked always and I travelled away from home a lot with my jobs that I had. So I never had the opportunity to sit and think, right, like you say, this is the day I'm going to do this now. But in 2017, a few things happened. I was made redundant and it was a bit of a, oh, I've I've always had a job. I've always had a busy, demanding job. What What am I going to do? And a few months after that, my mum was diagnosed with cancer and it's a cancer that can be controlled, but it can't be cured. So she's been on chemo since 2017. So lost my job, 
mum gets diagnosed and Jackie, Jackie Collins, ran a writing workshop up here in Newcastle at the Lytton Phil. And she said, come along, you, you know, you might just enjoy it. So those things happened. I went to the workshop and I just thought, this is it. This is where I fit. This is where I've actually always fitted, but never had the opportunity. So the redundancy turned out to be a good thing because I became mum's chemo buddy. I was able to take her for all her appointments and did the workshop. And then my mum had three months in hospital. And while she was in hospital, I visited just about every day. And at one visit, as I was going to leave, she said, you don't have a job these days, do you? And I said, well, no, apart from looking after you and looking after the house. And she said, well, can you do something for me, please? And I said, yeah. She said, can you find out what my mother was really called? And I said, yeah, I can try. And you know how every family has stories and secrets and myths. And I think you never know really, you know, whether Uncle Bob did commit that crime and Auntie Josie did do that with the next door neighbour. You just don't know. But what we had in our family was this story that had been handed down for generations about my nana. So mam's mam never knew her mother. She was abandoned at the age of four up here in Gateshead. Her mother and her mother's sister, her aunt, left the Northeast, went to London, and then they went to New York where there were dancers on Broadway. And my oh. nana was left mm -hmm. in poverty brought up by a very unsuitable cousin of her mother's who drank and neglected her. And this was the story. And my mum said, I don't know any of their real names. There's a rumour the aunt was married five times. Can you just see what you can find out? So I started going regularly to the library in Newcastle, looked on the genealogy sites and found that most of it was true. I found the sisters between 1905 and 1911 on ship's manifests back and forth from England to New York City. I found them at an address in a theatre on Broadway, living above this theatre. I found the nasty cousin and my nana living with her on census records here in some of the worst parts of Gateshead at the time. So I was able, I got certificates and I was able to give my mum the facts. And the story came out of those facts. So the Coco Girls, my debut, it's based on fact, but where the records disappeared, because these two sisters were pretty elusive, they changed their names. One of them, like my mum had thought, I haven't found the fifth husband yet, but I found four. One of them had four husbands, so she had many different names. And they just kept changing their names, their ages changed, their marital status changed. And doing research, I found this was quite common, especially when women were traveling alone, that they would sometimes say they were married when they weren't for official records because it looked respectable. So... Yeah, these women were pretty elusive, but I managed to fill in the gaps with imagination and research. And the Coco Girls 
the hook was there, I thought, I've got the time now. I've got the opportunity and I've got a hook for a story. So that was what sort of made me sit down. And at Jackie's workshop that day, she'd asked us all to write a scene that we thought might be the beginning of a novel or a poem or a short story, just to get us all working. So I'd written this scene where the sisters had arrived on Broadway and I thought, well, I've got the beginning except it didn't end up being the beginning. I think that was something like chapter 25 when it <laughs> was finished because it needed to be much further on in the story. But those were the things. It was like a perfect storm all came together. Wow, I love that. <laughs> um, so is that when your novel set then in the early 1900s? Yeah, it starts with the little girl being abandoned in Gateshead, and that's 1903. But then it flips further back in time to Paris in the 1880s because when I submitted my first draft to my editor, the, there's a great-grandmother figure who's French and my editor felt she was really the thread that needed to be pulled through the story in terms of her coming to England and then the sisters being, her daughters being born and then one of them having the character who's based on my nana. So she, my editor said, you need to go further back in time to pull that thread through. So that was the point when I thought, I know nothing about Paris in the 1880s <laughs> or France or how she would have traveled because she did travel to England to be a dancer. So I suddenly had to do a lot more research to do those chapters that are set further back. And whenever I talk about this bit of my journey, I always say to people, I'm going to say a sentence now that I never thought I would say in my life, which is thank you, Michael Portillo. Because, as I say, I knew nothing about the journey that that character would have needed to take. But his programme, The Great Railway Journeys, Continental Railway Journeys, he carries this volume, this Bradshaws around with him. And that is, there are different versions, but the one for the time I needed, again, I never thought I would say this, but I bought a copy of Bradshaw's Railway Directories and it's packed as a writer. It's just absolutely full of just gold dust. There are descriptions of the, the train times, ferry times of the time. And it tells you the stations that a train would have traveled through, adverts for things. There was an advert for, there's a, a nasty character who is the director of a dance troupe. And he smokes these little sort of cheroot type cigars. And I found this advert for something at the time. And they were called Cigars du Joy, at least, uh, a less joyful thing you couldn't imagine they're just full of toxic substances but I was able to give him these in the story and then also in Bradshaw's there was an advert for somewhere called the Paris Chocolate Company which was a cafe um, where you could go for a hot chocolate or a cup of coffee and sold bonbons and various other chocolate-based treats so I thought oh well I can have a couple of characters going in there and then when those characters did arrive in the Northeast, 
I thought, I'll plunk one on Grey Street in Newcastle because as a writer, you can do that. You know, they're probably, <laughs> I, I don't know if there was a Paris chocolate company on Grey Street in Newcastle at that time, but I thought, I can put one there. So, so go back to Paris and then it moves chronologically through um, 1903 onwards and ends in 1912 the first book um so obviously you've had to do masses of research what's the most fun thing you found out while you were researching well the Bradshaws was a lot of fun surprisingly never (laughs) thought I'd find never thought (laughs) I'd find myself pouring over uh, train times and ferry times that was really interesting I think One of the most fascinating things for me is certainly now when I'm researching the second book, because I've been reading, I could just go down a rabbit hole and be there for days, but you have to stop yourself, don't you? Um, In the first one, actually, the local history was really fascinating because I'd always known I was born and brought up here in the Northeast. And I'd always known there was a lot of poverty in Gateshead at the time that I'm writing about. And it was it was just horrific. So it wasn't fun, um, but it was it was awful reading about these places that I knew Manana did live. But in the second book, I'm reading, actually I'm thinking none of it, it's not fun scenarios. Um, so I've been reading about the Titanic. I've been reading about the First World War. And I've been reading about the Spanish flu epidemic because the second book starts in 1912. A standalone, so you don't need to have read the first one to read the second. I'm trying to write it that way anyway. But it starts in 1912 and it runs through to, I think it's going to be 1925. So I'm placing the women sort of in the context of these three global disasters. But some of the fun things... I've always loved music and I've always loved dancing. And when I was made redundant, it's been interesting because I've been able to return to the things that I loved doing. I think for a lot of us, we probably all reach a stage in our lives, maybe as a teenager, maybe a bit older, when life and responsibilities get in the way and you you stop doing some of the things that you always enjoyed. And for me, that was writing regularly, but also dancing. I loved to dance. And I think that's run through the family when I've learned about these women and their lives in America. So my stories have a musical thread running through them. And that's really fun. I'll be writing a scene and I think, yeah, a bit of music here. So there's a, I've got a little set of mp3s that accompany the first story and i'm doing one for the second as well so when i've given talks when i did my launch and i've given talks i've got this music playing in the background so when i'm doing a scene and i think yeah a a song here will be good a bit of a one they're all ancient so hopefully i haven't had any copyright issues (laughs) um so i'll go on youtube and i'm looking for songs of the era and again, the music done it, it's just amazing. So that is that is really a lot of fun. I gave a talk last year to the um one of the local WI councils. 
So it was 130 women. And I went along with my stand and my presentation, ready to do my talk. And I'd taken the music. I thought, this will be lovely because WI women, they like a bit of old music. Could not hear a bit of the music because <laughs> this was the ladies' first face-to-face get-together post-pandemic. And boy, and boy, could they talk. So I thought... Is the music on? Is it actually playing? And I was checking against my sound system, and yeah, it was playing. Couldn't hear a thing. <laughs> so yeah, learning about the music of the time, the dancers of the time, because in this book that I'm writing now, the characters on the Titanic are dancing, um, and the soundtrack that accompanies, you know, the White Star Line orchestra, is fantastic. So have a lot of fun with the music. Yeah, I bet that is absolutely fascinating. Oh, I'd love to know more about the Titanic, especially. Obviously, it's such a big thing. and I don't, still don't think we know much, really, do we? <laughs> no, and my research, I found so many stories about what may or may not have happened. And I'm going to put an author's note in the second book because I think as a as a writer, you have to decide, well, it's my narrative and it is a story at the end of the day. But I, I found one chronological timeline that I thought this this reads as a very reliable document to me. So I thought I'm going to base my timeline, my chronology upon this. But it's, it's about the characters, what happens to the characters. But yeah, it's fascinating. It, it is. I think it'll be something that endures the fascination with it because it's one of life's biggest mysteries. And and there are lots of conspiracy theorists out there, some people who would say, oh, it wasn't an iceberg, and others who would say, well, yes, of course it was an iceberg. <laughs> um, but, yeah, that, that's fascinating. And I've just been reading today a little bit about, because my stories really are about women and women of the time doing remarkable things because these ancestors of my mom's, well, mine, they did remarkable things. You know, they left this working class community on their own at a time when women, working class women, didn't travel to London unaccompanied, didn't travel really. You know, most people lived and died within a small radius of where they were born. And prior to going off and going to London, then New York, they worked here at a local ropery. So heavy, dirty, manual jobs. And then suddenly one day, they're off to New York. And I find that utterly fascinating, the fact that they were just up sticks. And there must have been a catalyst. There must have been something or someone who helped them to do that. I've made it up in the story because I don't know. But yeah, my stories are all about the women and what the women achieved at a time when all the odds were stacked against them. So the first one has some references to the suffragette movement. This second one that I'm writing now, a lot more and a lot more about what women were doing during the First World War. And that I just found compelling. I want to learn as much as I can. And I've got a book, actually. I've got it here, which I don't know if you can see. It's called Endell Street. And it's about 
the hospital in London, well, firstly in France, a field hospital that was established by Louisa Garrett Anderson and Flora Murray at a time when women weren't allowed to be doctors in England. But then the war changed that for them and they were able to really come into their own. And it was this whole army of women who did amazing things. So I want to focus on them and bring their stories to life. Oh, I love that. <laughs> um, I spoke to an author the other day and he writes about uh, female pilots that flew new planes to the front and then flew damaged planes back to get repaired. Um, so uh, that was really cool and really interesting as well. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it sounds, I mean, you know, I knew that the women were involved in the war and stuff, but I've learned more as I've got older and some of the stuff they've done was just incredible. Just wow. I and know. Was, and there yeah. were some women who were sort of key, they did key things that changed certain aspects of the conflict. And we just don't seem to hear about those women much. And I think the more that can be brought into fiction and non-fiction, that's why that book, I mean, that's non-fiction. And Wendy Moore does such a good job of just setting it all out. And I was amazed when I read it, because I thought, I just didn't know the half of this. And it's fascinating stuff. And there's the hospital in London, this Endell Street, where so many of the soldiers were brought with horrific injuries and treated by women. It was the first of its kind. And at a time when I think the sort of the medical profession was very anti-female doctors, they they needed them and they knew they needed them. And from there, we know the rest is history. But yeah, the pilots again, and women who drove, who drove medical supplies, who drove injured soldiers. Just fascinating. Yeah, it really is. Um, so which of your characters have you had most fun writing and which has given you the most trouble? Ooh, that's interesting. Um, I loved writing about the French grandmother um, because I loved writing the scenes in Paris and then bringing her to the northeast. And she... She's a silhouette in my mind because I don't have a photograph of her. I have very few artefacts of any of these ancestors, but I have a few photographs of um, my nana and her mother and sister. So the great-grandmother's fun because I just have an image of her in my mind and I don't know if it's real or it's not real. I also, and it's going to possibly sound a bit perverse, I had fun with Lizzie, who is the really nasty cousin, who is the drunkard, who is the neglectful guardian of the little girl. It, you can have fun with nasty characters found because for a time the little girl is also in the workhouse and the matron of the workhouse is a really bad egg. And I had some fun with her as well because it's almost as if you can make, they're intended to be awful, so you can make them as horrible as possible. Um, so they've been fun to write. Most difficulty with, um, 
Hmm. Not sure. I mean, possibly the woman who was my great-grandmother, so my nana's mother, because she she's complex. I need to make her complex because she does some awful things, really. You know, she abandons her daughter when her daughter's only four. And I think possibly she's a bit difficult to write because I know that's true. Mm. I know that happened to my nana. Mm. And then later in life, she does something else, which isn't very nice. And I think as a person, she must have been very single-minded and very possibly very selfish in terms of even though she had a child, she wanted to go and do her own thing. So she's possibly the one who I have some mixed emotions about. But I also like writing her because she's tricky and she she does do these unexpected things. And it's interesting because for years I would listen to authors talk and they would say things like, I didn't know my character was going to do that. And I would think, but you must know you're the writer. And now I know, no, you don't know what they're going to do because <laughs> the story sort of takes on a life of its own and it evolves. And as you're writing, you think, oh, this is going somewhere different. You've written it, of course, but it's still not necessarily going because I'm not a plotter. I've got, I'm somewhere between a plotter and a panster, I would say. I've got an outline, I know dates, I know characters except a new one popped up just a couple of days ago. I had no idea she was going to come along. Um, and I'm loving writing her because she's helping out at the hospital. And she is um, a young woman who drives, smokes, wears trousers in 1915, all things which women should not have been doing. So Olga, she's called. I'm loving Olga, having a lot of fun with her. But you don't always know where they're going to go. So it's it's great. It's just living living in your imagination with all these amazing women is fabulous. One of the funniest things I saw about that was just recently an author put, one of my characters decided that they've got a drag queen alter ego and then just why with loads of question marks. And I was like, okay. Yeah. Where did that come from? <laughs> because now you need to write that. <laughs> yes. And everything that goes with it. <laughs> yeah, it did make me chuckle. I was like, of all the things, that is so random. But okay, good luck with that, <laughs> Rob, you and me. <laughs> I hope that works out. <laughs> me too. Yeah. I'll have to keep an eye on that, actually, see if I can remember who it was. But yeah, it really did make me laugh. <laughs> Fantastic. And again, I think it's interesting because I've heard, you know, you, you read a lot as a writer and you you go to a lot of things to pick up because I think we can all always be learning. And I have heard people say, if you're trying to write something and it's not coming easily and it, it's a struggle, it's probably not the right thing. So switch it around because if you're struggling with it, then a reader's going to struggle with it. Um, and I've had occasions where I've been writing a scene and I'm thinking of something. So how do I do that? And, uh, and then you think, no, that's not actually the right way for this. It's, it's for me, and I know every writer is different. It's got to flow, it's got to come 
naturally. And if you're writing, for me, if I'm writing a scene, like Olga earlier today, and I'm writing about a car and her trousers, and it's just coming. It's And I think this is the right thing for her. This fits with her character. And if, if she suddenly sort of went off piste and did something odd, and I found, you know, if that popped into my mind that she's going to do this thing, and it might seem odd, and if I tried to write it and it didn't come, I think I would think, no, I'm not. I'm going to leave that because if it's not sort of flowing, it's probably not the right thing for Olga. Yeah. Um, all those years ago, when you knew that you wanted to write, were you, are you surprised that you ended up writing sort of historical fiction, or you, <laughs> did you uh, always expect that to be the case? I had no idea what I would write. <laughs> I knew I wanted to write. I, I never expected it would be science fiction or horror. I think having been immersed in the crime fiction community for a long time with going to festivals and knowing quite a lot of crime fiction authors, I possibly thought that might be the genre. I knew it wouldn't be rom-com. I, mean, I read voraciously and I'll read anything that comes along and I think you can learn something from everything that you read I've always loved historical fiction and there are some authors that I just lap up as soon as there's a new book available I love Philippa Gregory I love Hallie Rubenhold and I just I didn't really imagine that but it's it's fascinating because now I'm doing it I'm thinking of course because I always loved history local history and I always loved this notion of women having done remarkable things so in a sense it was the obvious thing but it never presented itself as that until I think you have to have a little bit of um what's the word, a little bit of a germ of an idea, and almost like a, a seed. Somebody gives you a seed, you know, to plant in the garden or a pot. And my mum gave me that seed by saying, can you find out what Nana was really called? And once I had her birth certificate in front of me, there was so much information on there that I just thought, this is, this is it. This is the direction I need to go in. And I look at census records online and I go as far back as I can. And a line on a census record can give you so much information, especially if it's a woman and she's head of household and she's a certain age. And you think, right, how did you get your money? How are you independent? How are you head of household? Because that was so unusual. And I just think, yeah, historical fiction it was probably always going to be historical fiction. <laughs> I just didn't realise it. And the more I write what I'm writing at the moment, the more I'm thinking I want to go further back in time because I've got I've got ideas for three books in this. I don't want to call it a series because I don't want people to feel they've got to have read the first one. They can pick anyone up and read it when they want. But these women within my family... I feel I can take them through to about 19, maybe the beginning of the Second World War. So that would be the third book. But then the fourth book in my mind is to go further back to the great-great-grandmother, back to France, 
and I would need a lot more research because that'd be going back to her mother to probably round about the 1840s in France. And um, also I've got in mind, I'm going, there's a guided walking tour around Gateshead in Newcastle that I've signed up for in a couple of weeks. And it's the, the sites of, there was a great fire in Newcastle and Gateshead in 1854. And I've always been fascinated by this because it's just not very well known. So I'm going on this walking tour and then I'm thinking that could be book five. That could be women caught up in that disaster and what happened to them. So, yeah, it was probably always the logical choice. <laughs> but until I was given that little seed, I didn't know that. And you hear other authors talk about things like this. You know, some crime fiction authors, I've heard them talk about nasty finds that they've made that have made them think, oh, a nasty thing could have happened here. And that leads them to a story. Yeah, especially crime fiction authors, weird, scary <laughs> minds. Lovely, <laughs> but weird. <laughs> yeah, and it's. I read a lot of it, Donna, but I think I, I don't think I could write this. Don't think that's that's for me. I read a fantastic book recently written by a friend of mine up here, David Turton from Sunderland. It's called The Psychic of Sachsenhausen, and it's part horror, part um, fantasy. Yeah, it's got a real sort of surreal twist with this psychic in it and it's Sachsenhausen was one of the concentration camps in the second world war in Berlin and David visited and just got this idea for the story it's fabulous but as I was reading it I was thinking I couldn't write anything as awful as this I would have nightmares <laughs> but I think it's 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 the strength of so many people and it's wonderful I think that we have so many fabulous authors around at the moment. I mean, they're just my to be red pile. I'm sure yours is the same. It's just a thing of, it's a thing of beauty, <laughs> but it's massive. Yeah. <laughs> I don't call mine a pile. I call it a mountain. I don't think even <laughs> a mountain's underdoing it. Because <laughs> it's electronic, you can't really see generally, but yeah, I don't want to know how big it is. <laughs> I put a message on my group the other day and I, I have a certain authors that I arc read for and beta read for nothing for ages and then I've got two beaters and four arcs or something at the minute I'm like can you not spread it out a little just a little bit please <laughs> apparently not no no <laughs> and I you think know. when you finish when you're at that stage you know, I've got three beta readers waiting for my second. And when you get to that point as the author, you just want it gone. You know, I'm done with you for now. Take it away. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so they've probably all thought, phew, and you've thought, no more. <laughs> you know, first world problems and stuff, you know, there could be more things to worry about. But... <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Um, when you first sat down to write, what did you find harder than you were expecting? Ooh. Um, think about that. Um, oh, that's a tricky one. The actual, the writing, I feel very lucky in this sense that I've never sat with a 
blank page. I've kind of always known where I'm going to go next. Um, and I always try and stop right in the middle of a sentence. So when I come back the next day, I can just carry on. Um, I think probably like many, many authors, self-doubt, that notion of, is this any good? You know, I'm doing this, I'm spending this time. And I always knew what my goal was, my objective, was to give my mum a published copy of that story because it's about her mother, basically. So that was always right. I can do that. I can achieve that. Anything else is a bonus. But that idea of fear, I suppose, you put something out into the world. And I think this is the case with anything creative, anybody who makes anything. Is it any good? Is, is anybody going to like it? And I think those doubts creep in at weird times. You know, you can be writing away and to yourself thinking, oh, this is wonderful. And, and then suddenly it's, well, I think it is, but what if nobody likes it? So I think that is is hard. And it's interesting, when I sent um, my first draft to my editor of The Coco Girls, and she came back with that comment about need to go further back in time. And that was a tough lesson because first one, I hadn't known what to expect, but I'd thought I was done. <laughs> oh, how we laughed. <laughs> and then, you know, when I got to sort of sixth draft, I think it was, and it went to beta readers, the comments that came back were fabulous because they were all things I knew I'd worked on. And I think it it was a steep learning curve in terms of how much there is to it. You know, when I, I did some writing classes run by Fiona Vich Smith, who's another local author up here. Um, and Fiona's classes, get your novel started, get your novel finished, get your novel published. And in that first lot of classes I learned how much I didn't know about writing and about the structure of writing and characterization and plot arcs and all the technical kind of things that I thought okay yes I do need to know about all of this so there was a lot to learn so I think from sitting down thinking I'm going to write a story to actual being published, trying to get published. And I went down the self-publication route in the end. But um yeah, just so much. I think that was that was hard realizing, oh, there's a lot to this. And I know very little. But you learn, you learn, and you're learning all the time, as I said. Yeah. Um, how did you choose your character names? Some of them are real. So they're based on what the women were actually called. Some from old census records and quite a few, I think locally, I'm probably known as the strange woman who walks her dog, who stops you and asks what your great grandmother was called. <laughs> Going around churchyards, if that doesn't sound too macabre. But at talks, I'll always say, I'm, I'm like a magpie. I love to collect old names. 
So if anybody's got a name, so I've actually just written one in to this story that somebody, I think it was the WI group, that somebody shouted out. And I'll try and talk to that person to get a little bit more information about that name. Because I think it's nice if you're reading something and perhaps a name pops up and you think, oh, that was my granddad's name. It depends what you do to them, of course, because... Um, do you know Liz Nugent, the Irish author? Oh, uh, yes. She put yes, me is. under a patio in lying in wait. <laughs> and I think on the cover of the book, it says something like, my husband didn't mean to kill Annie Doyle, but she was a lying tramp or something like that. <laughs> and honestly, I'll dine off this Donna. Liz, there was something on Twitter a little while back and she apologised. I said, no, no, don't apologise. It's fine. I can use that. I can dine out on that. <laughs> but old names are fabulous. You know, you've got Maud, you've got Myrtle, you've got names with a real ring to them. Um, so, yeah, I get them from all sorts of places. But it's fantastic. It's People want to talk about their ancestors. And I'm out with the dog all the time. So it's a great opportunity. If I see someone I haven't seen before, I think, oh, I'm going to have a word with you. <laughs> I came out, I do a Pilates class on a Wednesday morning and I came out of Pilates this morning with my friend and there was a woman walking past and I actually wanted to tell her about the Pilates class because my friend's the instructor and I'm trying to drum up business for her. So I said hello and started talking to this woman and afterwards my friend said, do you know her? And I said, no, but I know her a bit now. <laughs> so next time I see her, I'll have to ask what her grandmother was called. Yeah. <laughs> what was your grandmother called, Donna? <laughs> my nan is Beryl. My great nan was Edna. Oh, fabulous. And I knew knew my great nan as well. She died when I was about 13, so I knew her for quite a while. Wow. Yeah. And people of that generation, I could talk to for hours. I could, or, or I could listen to them because sometimes all you need is one question. And yeah. they love to talk. They love to yeah, share. They their memories yeah I mean my granddad died at the end of last year he was 95 oh, so wow. he was born in 1927 mm -hmm. so the stories that he could tell about his childhood and he remembered it so clearly you yeah. know he, it was absolutely fascinating I loved it and he was like you must think this is really boring I'm like no, no. you carry on please tell me everything I want to know it yeah. all and yeah, I loved it. Absolutely loved listening. So, and yeah, obviously it made me feel closer to him as well because I knew so much. Yeah, mm -hmm. it was great. Absolutely loved it. Because some of the things those gen that generation lived through, I think need recording, you know, we need not to forget. And just recently, my mum at 91, she was talking about, and this will be in the third book, the garden at the house where she lived as a child growing up. It was this huge back garden that my granddad um, created and looked after. And it was in an sort of inverted H shape. And my mum was talking about this and I said, can you remember what was where? And she said, oh yeah. She said, I, I can picture it. And I said, will you write that down for me please? Because that is, it's gold dust to a writer. And there were a couple of things that she couldn't quite remember, but my elder sister helped her with because she remembered it growing up. Um, and I just think information like that, it's because it's real, 
it's so valuable to to include in stories and you know you you change it around a bit sometimes so it fits with the story but the essence of things being in there um i mean i had a couple of in the first story a couple of guest houses and one of them i gave it a name and it was the name of a guest house that i used to stay in years ago when i worked away from home and i stayed in cheltenham a lot and I stayed with this lady who became like a second mom to me almost. And I called the guest house in my story Parkview because that was the name. And I sent her a copy and signed it. And she emailed me and she said, my guest house is in print. <laughs> and the other guest house, it was a boarding house set here in, New in Newcastle. This was fascinating because the idea for it came there's a programme called A House Through Time with David Olasuga. And he would trace the, the history of a house through the people that lived there. I think he did one in Bristol, one in Leeds, and he did one here in Newcastle. And it was a house in the West End of Newcastle that for a time was run by um, a landlady called Grace Eagle. And she provided accommodation to stars of the music hall at the time. So theatrical types. And this was perfect for a group of characters that I had in my first story. And when I had written it, my mum had read the book. She said, you know, your nana used to visit somebody in that house. And I hadn't known this at all. And I said, the, the chance of that. And I don't know what that connection was, who she visited there. But I just thought that's that's amazing, that sort of serendipity. So yeah, fantastic. Did you give your mum a cameo or does she have to wait? <laughs> <laughs> um she's not born yet, so um but I mean she's the first book was dedicated to her because without her there wouldn't have been this story. There might have been a story, but it wouldn't have been this one. But this one felt like the right one to for me to write and she'll definitely get acknowledged in the one where I have the garden so yeah oh, you must be so proud <laughs> I am and I'm very pleased to have been able I feel as though I've given these women something back given them a voice because my nana she had a horrible start in a in life and she never ever talked about it she was a wonderful nana. Just, I think family was everything for her, which is surprising when you think about her start because she didn't have that strong family life. But for so many years as a child, I would go with her on the bus from Gateshead into Newcastle on a day out during the school holidays or whatever. And I know now we would have passed through some of the places where she had horrific experiences. She never said a word. She never spoke about it. And sadly, I think she carried some shame in that her mother wasn't married. She was Her mother was just a teenager when she had her unmarried and then left her. And my nana carried that shame which is wrong you know we would say today that's wrong she'd done nothing wrong she wasn't responsible for her mother's choices when she later was able to make her own there were good choices 
but she never wanted to talk about it. And my mum didn't know her name, her real name, because when they had got her birth certificate years earlier, when my nana um, was the age to claim her pension when she became 60, my granddad threw it on the fire because under father, it was blank. Wow. And the shame of the time was so great. And my mum always felt, you know, she wished it, that could have been made different from Nana. But she never, she never complained. She never talked about it. She was a happy individual, very, very happy woman um, and a, a family woman. A lovely Nana, lovely mother. But I think for a lot of women, possibly some men as well, if they were born into that kind of scenario at the time, there was shame associated with it. Yeah. It's hard to imagine that now, isn't it? I just can't imagine how they're, you know, if people do it all the time, it's normal. But, you know, obviously it's not very common then, but well, more common than we think of. But, yeah, to carry that around for life as well, it's quite sad, mm. really. It is. And I think it was a lot more common than we think. And people just didn't talk about it. You know, it was swept under the carpet and possibly a child was brought up by an aunt and uncle, you know, another married couple within the family or by granddad and grandma because they were married and they didn't know for a long, long time. You watch any of the genealogy programmes on TV and you see this story being played out time and time again and you just feel sad for these individuals because through our lens today, you think, well, why? What's the problem? but there were yeah. different different times and I hope in the telling of Manana's story particularly I'm giving her a voice a better voice than she felt able to have at the time yeah um so I think my last question for you is what's been your highlight or a couple of highlights so far since you started writing giving my mum the published book because I had, I think like many authors, the rejections. When I thought I was ready, I thought, right, I'll try and I'll submit and I'll see where I go, agent, publisher, traditional route. And I had 16 rejections before I stopped. And I know that might not seem many, you know, I've got some statistics whenever I give a talk and I talk about how many JK Rowling had, how many Stephen King had, blah, blah, blah. But for me, I had a, a sort of little ticking clock because I, all I wanted, as I said, was to give mum a published copy. She wasn't too well. And I really wanted to give it to her for that Christmas of 21. So for me, I stopped and I thought, right, I'm going to look into self-publishing. And so with Amazon KDP, a friend who's a graphic designer, published gave my mum the copy for Christmas. So that a definite, definite highlight. And then I launched, even though I'd published in the December, because again, first time and doing it myself, doing everything myself, I had no idea as to the nuts and bolts and when do I launch and et cetera, et cetera. So I actually did a launch in the April, even though I'd published in December. And there's a local community hall here, not far from where we live, 
It's a beautiful old chapel and do a lot of different events there. And I held it there. Jackie interviewed me and I had, I think, over 60 people attended. I put on food and drink and had the music from the story playing. I stand books for sale. And I just sat there and I looked around the room and there are some fabulous photos, Donna, because long before I'd had a dream one night and I'd, I don't know, people, different people place different amounts of store on dreams, but sometimes you'll have one and it feels almost real. And I dreamt that I was having my book launch and it was in the Buick room in Newcastle Central Library, the big room where sometimes some of Newcastle Noir is being held. And everybody in the audience had a drink and they were all, you know, those little inflatable pink flamingos that you get to put your cocktail in. Everybody had one of those. And I think possibly it came from, I had one, I'd gone out in Newcastle for lunch with some friends and I'd ordered a pina colada and it came in one of those. And one of my friends said, you have to take that home. And I was like, no, I can't. And this friend put it in my bag. So I had one in the house. By the time of my launch, I had 75 because I thought everybody is going to, we're going to recreate that moment from my dream. <laughs> so a friend of mine was taking photographs and that's an absolute highlight for me. Just to oh, see wow. everybody holding my book, holding their drink in a pink flamingo <laughs> and just looking so happy, having such a good time. So that's a total highlight for me. And I've booked the hall again for the launch of my second um, book and that's booked for the 8th of September. And this time I've got some, I've got a cover reveal. I've got some pre-publication -publi pre publicity. So you're learning all the time about sort of the nuts and bolts of the things that you might want to do. So that should be another good one. I don't know if I'll have the pink flamingos this time. I might. You might nostalgia. go for something completely random. Yeah, something, <laughs> or something linked to your book, maybe something linked to the Titanic or something. Yeah, that's a good Go idea. A <laughs> Inflatable ships. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Although the dinghies are not such a good story related to the Titanic, are they? No, not enough. Not enough. No. Or have some twenties flapper dresses as the as the uh, dress code oh, <laughs> and whatever the men. Feather feather boas, maybe for the ladies. Dicky bow ties for the men. Imagine what You're the right. pictures would look like. It would be amazing. <laughs> I could have a 20 scene. That's a fine idea. Yes. <laughs> Perhaps I should go to party planning instead of this whole book. No, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> I would say as well, but I think you've got enough on your plate. Uh, yeah, I know. I, just, I need to sleep occasionally. <laughs> you do. You do. And have nice walks with your doggy. Yeah, bless her. Yeah, we'll take her out probably in a bit. Um, well, anyway, yeah, <laughs> but <laughs> I don't think I have any more questions unless you think there's anything obvious that I haven't asked you that you want to tell us. No, I don't think so. As I say, I think it's it's wonderful for me to sort of be able to realise this this dream that I, I wasn't sure I ever would realise it. And I think you talk to, I talk to so many people who say, I really want to write and if I can do it, do it, try it. You know, you can't edit an empty page. So write something, even if it's just a sentence. I feel incredibly lucky, Donna, in that 
at home I have the time and the space I can just come and write I don't have anybody sort of you know pecking at me to do anything I can just have I have this opportunity and I really want to take it and if I can help anybody in any small way then I'm happy to do that um, so just before we go, would you like to remind everyone where they can get your book from and where they can find out more about you if they'd like to? Certainly. So The Coco Girls is available on Amazon and you can get it hardback, paperback, ebook. It's available to order from Waterstones and Blackwells. I'm working at the moment to get physical copies into those shops, but I have physical copies in a few independent bookshops. I have it at The Bound in Whitley Bay, Featherbed Books in Hortonley Spring, and soon to be at Collected in Durham. Um, and what was the other part of your question? Where they can find out oh, more about you. <laughs> all, the so all the socials. So Annie Doyle author on Facebook, Annie D author on Twitter, Annie D author on Insta, I think I'm out there. So come find me, talk to me. I always like talking to people. Tell me what your great grandmother was called. <laughs> yeah, just get a blood now with messages. Yeah. <laughs> well, brilliant. This has been amazing. So thank you very much. It's been so lovely to meet you properly and talk to you. And I hope next time we meet, you'll have that pink hair back because... I do like I pink hair. <laughs> I will. And lovely meeting Trixie. Trixie, yeah. Oh. <laughs>